What's going on guys? Welcome to this week's episode of Total Pod Mode number 76. My name is James, also known as Mr. Bames, and I'm joined as always by Will, also known as Hudafunk. What's up guys? Hope you're all settled in nice and comfy for another episode of the show. What have we got going on this week? Well, got a usual catch-up, followed by some news, which isn't the happiest of news, most of it, but unfortunately needs to be talked about before rounding out the episode with the finale of our Odyssey into Mass Effect 3. What happened to the world? Did we save it? Did the Reapers win? Stick around to the end of the episode to find out more. But before all that, let's hit them socials. You can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on X at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. So, Will, catch-up time. What have you been playing this week, man? So this week, I've actually settled into quite a bit of Pal World. I've got to say, I've been really putting the hours in, probably averaging 10, 12 hours so far in the game. Really? That's pretty impressive. <laughs> Outside of Mass Effect, that is really all I've been playing, uh, and I've been having a, a really good time with it so far, I've got to say. Ah, please. Talk me through what you've been up to. So, so far in the game, I have set up a mining operation in my solo playthrough, uh, and I've also uh, been playing with Liam and Jem. Shout out to the guys. Uh, we've been joining a server hosted by Jem, where we've been exploring the map as well. Pretty much doing the same things, but the main gist of the game is your typical survival stuff. However, very quickly, you can negate a lot of the survival mechanics, such as needing to feed yourself and being in safe, warm environments, mining gathering wood that sort of thing by capturing the creatures in the game uh called pals and forcing them into slavery yeah pretty much i do have things in the camp like uh, a hot water spring and stuff like that to keep them happy they've got nice straw beds and things like that i try and look after them as best i can this isn't kind of like quite a battery farm just yet just loved a bit of straw on the floor so yeah you can sleep there you can't that's that's pretty much it it's just a uh yeah it's just a block of wood and some some straw chucked on it really and i say like a hot water spring it's more just kind of like an outdoor fountain that i let them play in but you know regardless they enjoy their time working there or so i think oh they've said that to you have they? they they haven't communicated that to me but it does actually tell you on the screen how they're getting on they can say everything's fine or this pokemon's really what? stressed and now they're overeating there's all these different things and status afflictions that they can get. Things like fractures on the job and other things like that. So you do actually have to look after these guys if you want them to progress in the game. And they'll level up as they work in your camp, kind of just like Pokemon. And by looking after them, you keep a pretty sturdy production line going. And being able to produce all the stuff like stone, wood, coal and ore in the game without necessarily having to go farm for it yourself is really useful. However... In my single-player playthrough, I have been playing a little bit more ruthless, I will say. So whenever I get any complaints from my camp, I immediately butcher the pal and consume it. Well, we got a news story later. They wouldn't like what you're doing. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. Uh, we've been treating them pretty nicely in the multiplayer playthrough. Whenever they get tired, uh, we retire them to the box for a bit, and that's kind of their cool-down area where they can reset to neutral. 
But with my single-player playthrough, I have been eating a lot of the pals. Very quickly, I've discovered that they have a lot of important resources on them that you do need to power and build some of the more advanced structures in the game, like a kiln. <laughs> All I'm hearing is, yeah, when I'm with my friends, I'm nice to them, but when we're alone, ooh, oh, that's, that's when the real me comes <laughs> yeah. out. That's the dark shit. yeah. That's <laughs> when I listen to the voices in the back of my head that uh, tell me to be a terrible... Uh, slave master basically hey man i need, I need a kiln i'm sorry you've got to go <laughs> yeah so there's uh there's things like fire organs uh that you need to power things like the kiln you can also capture fire pals to help you power the furnaces and the kilns as well you stick them next to them and they'll be powering them with different abilities that they have yeah i think i actually read on one of the scripts i haven't played it since last week but one of the descriptions i read on one of the things you can build is yeah you, i think it's the campfire you can't use this unless you have a fire pal to help you light it sort of thing so I, I can see how that would evolve into the more sort of um, ambitious things you can build as well exactly that yeah yeah absolutely and especially with the more ambitious creations and structures that you'll be making in the game you need bigger and better pals to help you actually craft that stuff yeah it makes sense every item in the game takes a certain amount of time to craft and when you check your pal skills, there will be a range of different skills like woodwork, farming, water abilities, fire abilities. And each of the different items in the game and crafting benches in the game that you can use all require different skills to power them. Do they have little bars for like how meaty they are? How much sustenance can I get from this Pokemon? What? <laughs> from this pal? They don't. That is kind of something you need to eyeball, actually. Yeah, they don't have a. They don't have like a uh, appetite fill meter on them as well. That isn't one of their attributes. No, you just have to kind of, I guess, eyeball it by the size of them. Typically, you get in a situation though. Oh, the sheep looks fat. Oh, it's all wool. It's got no meat on it. <laughs> It do be like that. You can like uh, hunt various large dinosaurs and big deer type pals in the game and harvesting them typically gets you a lot more items like leather uh, and, and meat and things like that that you can cook in the game. So getting down to it, um, this game I mentioned last week is known as Pokemon with Guns and uh, that is something that has been kind of heavily marketed or at least adopted by fans of the game and they're showing off that a lot. What I will say is it does actually take you quite a bit of time in the game to ever get to any real guns. Although there are PAL abilities that you can use that do get you guns early on. So for instance, I've got a green squirrel PAL called Liftmonk. And it has an ability where if you equip it with a certain item that you can craft in the game, it then is able to use an Uzi. Just like that. Here, have this acorn and now you've got an Uzi. It's got a natural affinity with uh, Uzis, apparently. Makes sense. Squirrels, crafty bastards. And it works a lot similar to Arceus in the sense that you throw out your pal sphere just like you would your Pokeball and at that point your Pokemon or your pal appears outside of it. But you can hold a button in the game on PC, it's F, I don't know what it is on controller, but that will allow you to activate their buddy skill. And that can be anything from being able to ride it, uh, being able to use one of its special abilities. The Lift Monk, for instance, that one, it jumps on top of your head and just starts firing its Uzi like a madman. Anything you aim at will get hit by it. I've also got a Firefox Pokemon that is definitely not a Volpix, but you're able to use that one like a flamethrower. You just kind of pick it up and hold it, just That's point it. its head towards Pull its tail. Yeah. anything you want to burn. Yeah, exactly. Nice. So ammo conservation is not a thing in this game. You do have a cooldown on those abilities. Cooldown's one thing, but your squirrel can just fire ad nauseum. It doesn't have like, in 50 rounds, it's going to need refilling. No, no, that's right. That's right. That's surprising given it's a survival game. 
but a nice surprise if you see what I mean. Like I'm happy to hear that. Well, that is purely just for the pals. And just to give you another example before I move on, uh, another one. There is a penguin that you can load into an RPG and fire it. Because of course there yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> Doing this immediately causes your character to get knocked out, but it does do a bunch of damage as well. So it's, it's more of a joke move, but it's Worth quite funny. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun. It's fun. One thing that I have been doing in both of my playthroughs is customizing some of the game rules, and this is something I'd probably recommend you do as someone that's not a huge fan of survival games. Just a couple recommendations for you. I would probably tweak certain settings in the game, and there are a huge range of customization options, but one of the settings in the game that might be worth tweaking is your item scavenging count. And if you increase that multiplier, every item that you'll get from scavenging for things, whether you're hitting trees or hitting rocks to gather supplies, it'll just be doubled or tripled, depending on what you set it on. Yeah, I saw those options, didn't fancy it. I know it would probably make my experience personally more enjoyable, but if I'm going to play this with people, then I need to play it properly. I'm not going to nerf it for myself, if you see what I mean. Because I did think about it. Because you can also do things like increase the amount of experience you get through actions and stuff, which you can just power level with that if you really wanted. Well, actually, that's one of the things that I would also recommend leveling up as well. Because if a survival game players are put off by the length of time that it takes to actually get anywhere, then upgrading those two things can seriously boost your gameplay and just get you in through the early stages. You can remember at any point to save yourself from over-leveling based on all the area bosses you can just revert all of that stuff to normal but it might be doing on just your first handful of playthroughs just so you actually get somewhere and make some headway beyond building a wooden shack and a campfire yeah I, I guess i say i thought about it but my biggest issue with survival games isn't typically things like that it's the hunger and thirst mechanics and stuff like that i just don't like micromanaging that sort of thing which you can also tweak and actually remove yeah which is fair enough but in power world so far admittedly i've only played for an hour and a bit doesn't seem to be like a bigger thing and you can eat the pals so hunger is basically if, if you die of hunger in this game i'm imagining you're a bit shit. i don't actually know whether you can die of hunger in this game i think you just go down to one hp but i get your point I guess for me personally, I don't have all the time in the world to put into it, and I wanted to see, on my first world at least, what the game has to offer. Don't have all the time in the world to put into it, played for 10 to 12 hours this week. Yeah, that's what I mean, I've only got 10 <laughs> to 12 hours, I don't have as much time as I'd like to put into this game, I have really been enjoying this game. But that said, even considering that, it does take a while uh, to get hold of firearms in the game, a makeshift handgun I think comes at maybe the mid-twenties or something like that. Uh, so it's a while before you even get stuff like that. You're relying on a crossbow for quite some time. You say you can't get a gun straight away. There's an NPC you meet like straight away who has a gun. I didn't try, but can you knock him out and steal his gun? No, you can't steal guns from NPCs in the game, unfortunately. Even the human enemies that you encounter in the game, you can't steal their gun. Oh, that's a shame. But I did confirm that you can just steal them, uh, which is something I've done, and I've built up just a small army of human workers. They're not particularly useful, unfortunately, and it says that it's inhumane to do that. Irregardless of that aspect in things, they just really pale in comparison to the pals in terms of their, like, workability. Can you eat the humans? You can eat the humans. Once you capture a human in a pal sphere, which is the equivalent of a Pokeball, they are treated from that point like pals. You can even pet them. <laughs> And I'll just touch very briefly on some of the exploration in the game as well. There are these large towers that are based around the game that give you various boss battles. Fighting through them, you just need to make sure that you're leveled up enough to encounter them. And it plays out a lot like in the outer world, except that the boss is usually much more powerful uh, and they have an upgraded moveset. Typically, they'll be larger and their attacks do more damage. But there are also bosses in the overworld as well that you can encounter and even dungeons. 
So at certain points in the game, you'll find caves that you need to work through and you'll find human enemies in there, pal enemies in there, all of which you can capture. Nice. So there's quite a bit to find and do in the game. And a lot of these dungeons will reward you with chests, which give you upgraded equipment. It might even give you an early opportunity to actually access some of the firearms early in the game without necessarily needing to afford the level and tech points to be able to unlock it. But that aspect of things I haven't really explored so much yet. Yeah, well, early days. Still plenty of time. Like I said, I probably will start multiple worlds in this and... At a certain point, I'll probably revert the scores back to normal, especially with some of the upcoming multiplayer stuff that I've heard coming out. They have announced a roadmap with PvP to be coming soon as well. Yeah, which allegedly you can steal other people's pals in, which is uh, causing a bit of a, a wave of outrage to form, which I agree with. I don't think you should be able to steal other people's Pokemon or pals. That's like an unwritten rule. There's a lot of unwritten rules that I feel like Power World breaks in this. There's no labor laws in the world of Power World. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but labor laws is one thing, but you can't steal someone else's pals, mate. That's just cruel. At the core of this game, it is very similar to games like Ark and Rust, so I can fully believe that they would have that facility in this game as well. You could absolutely raid another base and steal all their rare pals. But that is sort of the thing with this game, whereas if you don't want that aspect, you're better off starting a single-player server and playing by your own rules. But the multiplayer thing is a whole different aspect where you need to learn to not get too attached to your stuff. That base that you're going to have might not be there the next time you sign in, especially if you're playing on a dedicated server. But that's all from me. What about you? Well, as already intimated, I didn't play any Power World this week, and I've only played one game as well for the most part, and that's uh, more Baldur's Gate 3. Are you still lingering in Chapter 2, or have you actually punched all the way through? Act 2 is done. Okay, uh, Much okay. shorter, like, uh, considerably shorter, probably 10, 12 hours shorter than Act 1 was. Are you still pursuing your kind of semi-beeline hurrying up through the game? Yes, but because I'm me, it hasn't worked precisely like that. <laughs> right, okay. But yeah, no, I'm being a lot more ruthless, um, sticking to a lot of the decisions I've made. And uh, the way that this... I know that it's sort of been said to death, and I've probably said it a bunch, but the way this game gives you choices to get out of things is pretty impressive. A couple of examples. So as part of Act 2, without getting too much into story spoilers, there's a big boss bad guy that you end up killing as like the final boss of Act 2, right? Before you get to that fight and stuff, you, you can meet three of his siblings in the overworld in various places okay okay and for most people if you don't have any skill investment and things like that it ends up in three fights and three quite tough fights as well like these enemies have a lot of health and they're pretty tanky but because i'm a bard and i've specced to persuasion and performance and deceit and all that good stuff i just sort of talked my way out of a bunch of fights i got one person to get all of his companions to kill themselves and then he killed himself damn that is uh one hell of a charisma check that you were able to do that <laughs> it was pretty sweet then there was this other guy basically he's a surgeon and uh he he he's torturing this bloke right he's just get cutting him apart and all this and he wants to get his they're called sisters or something like that his sisters to perform surgery on you the player character but i just charismed him to just be like yo why why do it on me when you can do it on yourself <laughs> okay <laughs> and he basically he, he killed the guy that was in the operating chair pushed him off lay down himself and was like go on and get me and he, and he got killed by his sisters and then they all just weren't hostile and i could just chill it's pretty great. Yeah, that's some of that tabletop madness there where you get a high enough dice roll and they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter what bullshit reason we're going to need to have, you're winning this. If you roll a nat 20 on something, you're getting whatever the hell you want. Another one is um, one of them's a toll collector and uh, 
she just wants all of your gold. I gave her a single piece of gold and she's like, oh, give me all your gold or you die. And I was like, well, who says? Why are you doing this? You don't answer to anyone. Like, wh- why are you collecting gold? And they, and that confused the person so much. They were like, I have no purpose. And they killed themselves. <laughs> and um, the final one, which is arguably the best, is um, is a big, like, crudely sewn together, almost like cadaver of this human. Fully bloated. He has a barrel on his back that has like shiny liquid in it that he pours into pint glasses. Okay. And um, because I have sleight of hand as well, I was using the sleight of hand checks to pretend like I was drinking with him. And then he wants you to tell him stories about your adventures. So I'm a bard, so I told him some great stories. And you just get him to keep on drinking, and you just don't drink, and eventually he explodes. Right. Okay. Death by mukbang. Exactly. It's, it's great. And the way, just the sheer amount of choice you have with the way outcomes can come about is, is just fantastic. And that's just side quest stuff. Imagine what the main quest stuff that I could do that I'm not going to talk about because it's spoilers. It, it's awesome. Including a bunch of false endings where you get an ending, but then it's like, nah, but seriously, game over. Like, reload and try again. It's very, very fun. And I'm into Act 3 now, which has actually got me to Baldur's Gate proper, or very nearly. I'm not quite in there yet, but I will be very soon. I don't know why I never questioned that Baldur's Gate is actually a real location within the game. In my head, it was just like a, it was almost like a a concept in my head, more than a natural place. I used to think exactly the same thing. The same with Neverwinter Nights too, because Neverwinter's a city as well. And I, I always the same thing. It's all Sword Coast lore, shout outs. But yeah, it's the way that the story has progressed and some of the twists that have happened is just like, okay, cool. I really didn't see that coming. That's nice. And uh, I look forward to seeing how Act 3 goes. So far, not as impressive as the first two acts, I've got to say, but take that with a pinch of salt. I am only in the very first area. But I'm looking forward to seeing how it goes. I don't think that this is going to be like a I'll finish it next week type jobby. No, definitely not. I think Act 3 is going to be back to the sort of 35, 40 hours that Act 1 was. But... If I keep up at the pace I'm going, I do think I'll have it done in a couple of weeks. You'll be free! A free man! Free to delve into any large RPG that you wish. The thing about this game is it is fantastic. Definitely deserves to win Game of the Year, no complaints whatsoever. It is a lot of investment though. Because the story is so intricate and well told, you have to be quite focused and switched on. It's not the sort of game you can just like play, put on for a couple of hours and just zone out. You need to be on it. The combat in my opinion, is tough enough that you need to be on point so that you can actually be tactical and like say, right, if I move there, I'm just going to get slaughtered. Whereas, I, you know, you need to think about positioning and stuff. Again, you can't really just run in and rinse it. So that with the sheer size of the game, if you want to see everything and have a run that is fulfilling, at least for me in an RPG, you need a lot of focus. I, I don't think this is a game that I'll do a second playthrough of anytime soon when I finish the first one. Yeah, I can absolutely appreciate that. It is a long, old game and playing the same thing for such a long time you can definitely have your fill of it you're already bored of seeing the start of the game a handful of times definitely now is not the time to start an alternative playthrough although the evil playthrough when i do do it again is going to be very fun i'm glad that i ditched it and went to the good playthrough because i'm seeing a lot more content than i would have been otherwise but um the evil playthrough will have some very very interesting differences i think which will be fun to sort of compare with when i do finally get there so it's been very good fun i look forward to playing more of that but uh, that is all i've played this week so i think that about does it for the catch-up this week so why don't we move on to the gaming news <laughs> With our first story this week, unfortunately, we're starting off on a very negative note. 
Embrace the group are planning for more layoffs, Will. Damn, that is never news that you want to hear. It certainly isn't. So in an unfortunate continuation of last year's layoff debacle, Embrace the group continues its restructure plans in 2024, if that's what we're going to call it. It's Carl. Uh, I would probably more refer to it as a Carl. So according to an article from GameRant, Black Forest Games, a German video game developer's subsidiary of THQ Nordic, which Embrace Group owns, is reportedly planning to lay off around 50% of its employees. Damn, that is huge. The whole of... Just Black Forest Games. Okay, sure thing. Yeah, I was about to say, I thought that was an Embracer. An overall no, no, no. Embracer. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Still a lot. Like, don't it's still, wrong, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. They're stripping studios to pieces. So Black Forest Games was founded in 2012 before being acquired by THQ Nordic in 2017 and is known across the industry as the developer of Cold War-era alien invasion remakes Destroy All Humans, which I never played, but apparently is very good fun. That is a very fun game. Yeah, I played a couple of those. I think the first and second one on the PlayStation 2, and they were really fun games. Shout out my boy Crypto. More recently, the company announced that it was working on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles The Last Ronin, which is a darker take on the franchise inspired by Sony Santa Monica's God of War games, which that sounds pretty interesting, to be honest with you. So hopefully the, these cuts don't affect that, because that sounds like it could be quite a fun little beat-em-up. But um, according to a report from Kotaku, Black Forest Games announced to its staff on 24th of January that the developer plans to cut around 50% of its workforce, with management promising to provide more information by next week, which is this week, at the time of release. The article went on to say that a source confirmed that most of Black Forest Games' upper echelon, including creative directors and managers, would be safe from the layoffs. Surprise, surprise. This follows news that we aggregated last year of two Danish developers owned by Embracer Group, 3D Realms and Slipgate Ironworks, announcing that over half of their staff would have their roles terminated as well. Now obviously this isn't good news, we covered a lot of things like this at the end of last year, and to be fair in the middle of last year too, and unfortunately it doesn't get much better because according to Kotaku's report, January has already seen record-breaking number of around 3,900 employees affected, more than half the total number of game developers laid off in the entirety of last year. And we're only a month in. Yeah, so this is very much coming as a wave of layoffs across the industry, isn't it? Yeah. Well, with Embracer Group specifically, when they were talking about their quote-unquote restructure, they mentioned that in June last year, and we're still sort of seeing the effects of it half a year later. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there's any signs of slowing up. This kind of feels a little bit like staggering the layoffs just to avoid uh, the scrutiny of having to have mass layoffs of huge numbers of your staff. And don't get me wrong, these are huge numbers of staff that are already laying off. But staggering it like this prevents uh, the backlash where you just end up laying off actually half of your workforce and crushing a bunch of studios all at once. I think that this kind of softens the blow a bit, and I do feel like that's a tactic Embracer Group are adopting. I don't necessarily think you're wrong, but I do think it's more likely to be the fact that because Embracer Group covers such a large number of game studios under its umbrella that it has to kind of do them one at a time. They're just going through and reviewing each one piece by piece, you reckon? I mean, I, I can believe either option, honestly, because... PR is a powerful thing, particularly in this day and age. Well, it's not like this is all just a, a big sign of mismanagement from the beginning, so I think either approach is quite likely. And neither approach is great. Once again, feel like we've said it far too many times, but it needs to be said. Our thoughts go out to those that have been affected. Yeah, and I think the more news we hear about this, it's just a matter of time before we hear about uh, bigger and bigger companies being affected by these sorts of hits. Well, it's funny you say that, Will, because our second news story today is about a bigger company that's been affected by this sort of thing. Oh, jeez! What do you mean? Not only has Embracer Group been announced some cuts, but Microsoft is cutting 
just under 2,000 jobs, 1,900 jobs from its video game division. Right, okay, that is a big surprise, especially given that I was talking up the old Game Pass last week. I thought that uh, the Microsoft Games division were rolling in it. What are they going to do with uh, all of these studios that they've acquired if they don't have any staff? So dude, pinch of salt with this one, which we'll get on to because it's kind of to do with the acquisition, which kind of makes it a bit more understandable, but even still. So according to an article from GameSpot, Xbox head Phil Spencer spoke about the painful decision to reduce the number of people in the Microsoft video game workforce in a memo sent to staff. Spencer wrote in this memo, As we move forward in 2024, the leadership of Microsoft Gaming and Activision Blizzard is committed to aligning on a strategy and an execution plan with a sustainable cost structure that will support the whole of our growing business. Together, we've set priorities, identified areas of overlap, and ensured that we're all aligned on the best opportunities for growth. As part of this process, we have made the painful decision to reduce the size of our gaming workforce by approximately 1,900 roles out of the 22,000 people on our team. So still very significant. That's uh, it's almost 9%. It's like 8.5% of your workforce. But as I mentioned, there's kind of... Uh, I never like saying a good reason because that's not correct, but there's kind of a understandable reason for this so obviously last year microsoft was finally able to close its 69 billion dollar nice. acquisition of activision blizzard and acquisitions such as this often lead to a lot of layoffs due to the overlap referenced by spencer in his statement although it's unclear what portion of the 1900 layoffs are attributable to this uh, as will have stated the figure amounts to almost nine percent of all xbox employees and one of the names specifically called out was blizzard president mike ibarra now this may come as a surprise to some but again Changes in presidents and things like this can be a direct result of major acquisitions because, you know, Phil probably wants to get his own people in those roles now that he owns the company, which is, you know, it's understandable. And not that it makes the news any less distressing, particularly following last year and our first story. And I believe as part of this, um, it also referenced uh, Rockstar and Bungie making cuts as well. So just to sort of add to the big companies doing the cuts as well, it's, it's all seems to be kicking off. Not nice. Although, as I say, with the Microsoft one, at least there's potentially some reasoning behind it because they're trying to streamline following the acquisition, but still not nice. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be difficult for people working in the company, uh, although perhaps uh, a little bit anticipated given the volatile nature of acquisitions like this. When you've got so many people in the mix uh, and new ideas and things coming into the company, I think it was a really valid point that you made there about wanting to get some of the Microsoft DNA embedded within those companies so roles there that they've actually able to choose for themselves choose the people that they hire into those roles can make sure that going forward the companies can kind of adopt the overall microsoft ethos and uh, that will definitely be what they're looking to do hopefully things will settle down and maybe they even start making new hires because they have to get loads more people on for all these games that they're going to be doing now that we hope they're doing and yeah, let's just uh, let's just hope that things settle down. I mean, if you've laid off a tenth of your workforce almost, uh, let's just hope that, uh, <laughs> that that's enough. So after the potentially depressing first couple of news stories, I thought our third news story today should be something with a little bit more comic relief. Although you could argue it still is a relatively serious topic, but I just enjoy laughing at this lot. I'm, I'm finding it very difficult to take this seriously, given... Uh the context of what we're about to talk about. <laughs> exactly. We've been talking about Power World a fair amount this episode, and uh, you couldn't have a game where animal death is involved without Peter getting involved, could you? According to Game Ram once again, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, Peter, have issued a statement about the supposed animal cruelty in Pocket Pez survival game Power World. It's uh, very weird, and that context that I was talking about was the fact that we're, we're talking about digital 
fictional creatures. <laughs> That's always the argument though, right? They, they always come for these games. <laughs> so as mentioned by Will on last week's episode and on this week's episode, one of the mechanics present in the game is that one can kill and eat pals in order to survive. Honestly, that's one of the more innocent uses for the pals in the game, considering what else you can put them through. Exactly. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Peter aren't particularly happy about this, because uh, of course they're not. So uh, as a result, they got in touch with Insider Gaming and said the following. Peter has already heard from many Power World fans who have no interest in eating pals and want a vegan guide created for the game. It's Veganuary after all, and gamers want to help animals by eating vegan in their game worlds and outside. Well, what i got to say is, number one, uh, they're only picking up on the fact that you eat them and there's nothing about the fact that the whole uh, ambiguous labour laws working your pals to the bone in a furnace, uh, somehow that hasn't garnered enough attention. But also uh, the, the, the case that you can totally be a vegan in this game. You can just sit there and eat red berries uh, for your whole playthrough and bread and things like that. Oh, perhaps not vegan then with the bread. I'm sure that you've got other ingredients. You can be veggie though. You don't have to eat the pals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't quite get the argument. It definitely gives you the option, which is more than a lot of games can say. It's just Peter being Peter, I think, yeah. because... Let's be real, a few years back they didn't they do um they do these parodies where they make games that just go far too far and be like they're actually way brute more brutal than anything that games actually do. Um they did one with Animal Crossing a few years back, I think. I feel like there was another one where it was something like you could throw seagulls in oil or something and it was like Angry Birds. Okay. Like they've done all sorts of nonsense. Uh, do, you, do you think we're going to get a Peter-produced Power World product down the line? I would love to see Peter produce a game if they haven't done already. Yeah, that's what they do, though, man. Like I, say, I mean, they came for Animal Crossing, for fuck's sake. Like, what's offensive about Animal Crossing? You live in a community with animals. And if anything, the animals take advantage of you more than the other way around. Yeah, Tom Nook's a dirty fucker. Like, you know, he, he just he basically traps you in false economy. Oh, you want more furniture? Fucking work for me, bitch. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But yeah, after the news of, uh, you know, more layoffs and things, which is never nice, I thought this was quite amusing. I would say so. I really want to find a Peter employee and show them me loading a penguin into a rocket launcher and using them as an RPG. I'd also want you to show them the squirrel with the Uzi thing to be like, look, they're cool, man. These guys are more bloodthirsty than I am a lot of the time, honestly. Yeah. I actually spend the majority of my time in Power World getting my ass kicked by giant dinosaurs. Yeah, exactly. It's not what you think, Peter. Stop it. Honestly, you spend five minutes in this world, you'd want to enslave them too. But yeah, on that slightly hilarious note, um, I do think that about does it for the news this week. I think it's time we now move on to Completionist Corner. <laughs> So we pick up our story having just resolved the conflict between the Geth and the Quarians who had been fighting over the Quarian homeworld of Rannoch. Upon returning to the Normandy, Shepard receives a message from the Asari counsellor asking them to meet her in Udina's old office on the Citadel. Shepard heads to the Citadel and meets with the Asari counsellor who explains that there is an artefact on the Asari homeworld of Thessia that may assist with completion of the Crucible. Shepard isn't best pleased that this has been kept secret until now, but the Asari counsellor states that it had to be kept secret as, apparently, in the wrong hands this artefact could be deadly. She gives Shepard the coordinates of an ancient Asari temple where the artefact is being held and sends Shepard on their way saying that a team of scientists looking after the artefact will be expecting them. En route to Thessia, Shepard discusses the situation with their Asari squadmate Liara Tassoni, who is upset that her homeworld is being invaded by the Reapers. After either comforting her or telling her to suck it up, depending on our playthroughs... Guess who did what? <laughs> yeah, take a wild guess. <laughs> 
The crew lands on Fessia, which, due to the Reaper attacks, resembles a pile of rubble rather than a vibrant society. Shepard, Liara, and a crew member of our choice make their way to a nearby outpost where they meet an Asari lieutenant named Kurin. Before Kurin can give us a sitrep, the makeshift barricade being used to block the Reaper forces from advancing is destroyed, and a fight ensues. The hole in the barricade is patched up by an Asari biotic, whilst the waves of Reaper forces are taken care of by Shepard using a nearby mounted gun. Very conveniently placed, innit? Gotta love that shit. I found myself at that point asking why Shepard was the one on the cannon, seeing as we had the important mission to do. That kind of seems like really putting yourself in the hot seat there, and if they're going to shoot anything, it's going to be that. It just seemed like an odd choice to be jumping on the gun. Especially in your case, because you're a biotic. Why weren't you patching up the wall while the uh, Masari sorted their own shit out? I kind of feel like this was just an excuse to stick another turret section in the game. There's been a few of them so far, and uh, I guess they think that they are their fun or something. Yeah, the first one was. The second, third, fourth, and fifth probably weren't as fun. <laughs> yeah, not so much. Not so much. With the Reaper forces subsiding, for now, Curran is finally able to update Shepard on what has been going on, stating that she had been ordered to hold the line in anticipation of Shepard's arrival. She advises that Shepard and co. should push towards the temple via another outpost called Tychus. Shepard and the crew fight through more waves of Reaper enemies, including but not limited to husks, cannibals, and banshees, the Reaperfied versions of the Asari themselves, before finally arriving at Outpost Tychus. I really did like fighting these banshees. I thought these were one of the cooler enemies in the game because they have a few different abilities and it can close a lot of distance very quickly. I agree with you, but by this point, I'd already fought them so many times that they weren't exciting anymore. Right, okay. So for me, this was almost my first encounter with them. I clearly haven't engaged with the amount of side content as you had. So. Oh yeah, dude, they're everywhere, man. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. So this was my first time seeing them and uh, it was it was actually something that I was enjoying. It was, oh, a new enemy, cool shit. They can blink around and attack you. They can shoot biotic powers at you. And they're kind of hovering. They play the equivalent of like a witch enemy in the game. Kind of remind me of an enemy from Remnant. Yeah, I mean, they are the Asari. Yeah. Just reapified. So they, they kind of resemble that, but they're more floaty and taller somehow. And they have glowy blue nipples. Sure. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely didn't notice that. Right. Yeah, yeah. They've got like glowy blue dots over uh, various bits of them, but especially on their nipples. Especially the nipples. <laughs> From Outpost Tychus, it is a fairly direct route to the temple where the artifact is being held, but this route is blocked by large numbers of Reaper forces. Team Shepard fights their way through the hordes of Reaper forces before their path is blocked by two harvesters, giant airborne Reaper creatures who are tanky lads and lasses. I hated these guys. Avoid them at all costs. Yeah, in fairness, I don't think... You're meant to kill these two. You can. No, I stayed in cover for this. I killed one earlier on in the game. It wasn't that much of a payoff. I left it at that. Yeah, I killed a few in some side quests. But yeah, these guys are more just, uh, they sort of pop in, attack you for a little bit and then fuck off, really. And as a result, these are eventually defeated or simply leave if enough Reaper mobs are destroyed in the interim, which by the sounds of it is what we both did. Yes, indeed. But this allows uh, Team Shepard to advance to the temple. Shepard arrives at the temple and is drawn to the base of a giant statue that occupies the main room. Shepard senses that there is a Prothean beacon hidden inside this statue, and that this must be the artifact that the Asari counsellor told us about. The crew realises that interacting with certain objects within the temple causes cracks to form on the statue, meaning that if we interact with enough of them, the statue will reveal the beacon within. 
After going around and tapping uh, various few artifacts... Which wasn't at all tedious. No, and it was a pure guessing game as well. There was no puzzle in this, I don't think. No, there was no hint. There's not. You have to interact with every single thing. Yes, and just walk hope. around the room <laughs> while they tell you a bunch of times, no, that's not it. And it's like, no shit, it's not it. It didn't light up blue and do anything. I know <laughs> exactly. I'm just touching a goddamn stone jug. I don't care. <laughs> if you can't tell already, I was, I, yeah, it was was starting to uh, starting to feel the end of this game uh, approaching. And I was looking forward to it. <laughs> anyway. With the beacon now revealed, Shepard is able to interact with it, leading to a conversation with a Prothean VI, similar to Vigil from Mass Effect 1, who we tried to convince to aid us with completing the Crucible. Before we can get a firm commitment, however, the conversation is interrupted by the arrival of Kai Leng, the Cerberus assassin from last week's episode. Rather than attack Shepard, Kai Leng puts them through to the elusive man via comlink. The now clearly indoctrinated elusive man tries to turn Shepard around to the idea of controlling the Reapers rather than destroying them before finally ordering Kai Leng to secure the Thessian beacon. Cue the boss fight music. I wish that actually was boss fight music so that would have been cool. But uh, we do at this point get a sort of boss fight with Kai Leng. In this boss fight, he's a bit of a puss boy. He kind of attacks you for a little bit, then bails and gets a gunship to come down and just shoot at you. It's pretty much in between every time you take down a decent amount of his shield, he runs off and recharges you whilst the gunship starts pelting you. Yeah, and whilst I liked the concept of this, I didn't think it was done particularly well. No, no. I, I think probably suffering a little bit from the controls of the game and just kind of the moment-to-moment -moment action. Like, it could have been cooler if it controlled a bit better, I think. Yeah, and it was a nice setting, but there wasn't enough cool cover, if that makes sense. You have all these pillars, you're in this giant temple sort of thing, but you can't really do much with it. It's really bizarre. That is extremely interesting to me that you picked up on that point specifically because i was almost gonna say the almost the complete opposite i found a point where i could hide behind the pillar and shoot him without the gunship being able to shoot me so i oh, just really? stood there and just emptied my clip over and over again like oh, that fair. boss fight was so dumb for me <laughs> it happened after a couple times but eventually uh i was able to do it that's i didn't think to do that i was just sort of i was looking around the outskirts thinking there's nowhere cool for me to go as a sniper so i'm just gonna stay central it might have been a thing where the fact that all of my guns are operating from a third person perspective and the fact that you were scoping might have altered where the camera sits so that i could hit them and you couldn't Maybe. i can kind of believe you know that weird shit happens with third person games sometimes where your reticule lines with where you're shooting whatever yeah yeah so i can believe that would have happened but yeah no it, it did take me a couple goes to actually find the sweet spot but when i did it was uh just a non-stop keeping my finger on the trigger moment and the other thing that made this slightly disappointing is uh in my opinion uh, the ai wasn't brilliant in this fight so kai leng like i'm shooting him in the head he's looking at me but then he'll f off to somewhere else in the room to try and get liara who's not doing anything and i'm just like dude i'm literally shooting you in the back of the head here in most games that would cause you to either aggro me or go to cover why are you just standing there letting me do this to you? I mean, it made it end quicker. <laughs> That's I suppose positive. nice, but... I have noticed some weird stuff with the AI in this game in the sense that they never really seem to be aggressive enough to actually push me, and I could almost prevent them from making movement towards me just by pushing them. They seem to back down way too easily, and I never really found myself in the situation where I was being overrun. 
unless they manage to get around a corner or somehow get behind me from a distance. It's very hard for them to flank you. Unless you're in a very wide open area, which admittedly did happen a couple of times. But for the most part, I found that the enemies back down very quickly in the game, and they won't push you if you keep up the minimum level of aggression, which can actually make them quite predictable as well. They'll almost stop in their tracks and start retreating the moment that you start to move towards them. The aggro is very weird. Like, there's been plenty of fights similar to this where i'm just taking people out and they're just letting me right like, okay, yeah, yeah it's kind of weird so yeah that's the kai Leng boss fight i suppose you do it like a couple times he goes back to recharge like maybe two or three times right two or three recharges yeah and then we get to what happens next so uh, having finally beaten kai Leng, he resorts to cheap tactics to get his way because of course he does the cerberus dog the gunship that was intermittently assisting him throughout the boss fight destroys the floor of the temple causing shepherd to fall through with Shepard temporarily out of commission, Kai Leng can retrieve the Prothean VI and escape with it. Shepard thankfully is able to crawl their way back up to the main temple floor before despondently returning to the Normandy. Yeah, Shepard takes this one really hard. I don't know whether it was just my character, but yeah, Shepard was really down on themselves about this whole thing. So after a melancholic debrief with the Asari and the Alliance, Shepard and the crew are bemoaning the fact that Cerberus are always getting in the way of their heroics. <laughs> it's an interesting way to put that. <laughs> I'm just trying to do my heroics, goddammit. Just trying to do my heroics. Cerberus keeps on coming in, cramping my style. Well, my character is. Your your character's more like... Just trying to commit oriented. my atrocities. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just trying to do a few war crimes. Cerberus keeps on coming in. Makes me do more war crimes. Goddammit. But then their war crimes outweigh mine, so it takes all the shine off my war crimes. Yeah, I'm tired of living in the shade of Cerberus's war crimes. <laughs> so as you can tell, the situation is bleak. All seems lost. That is before Specialist Trainer pipes up, stating that she was able to track Kai Leng's shuttle across the galaxy. Awesome. Great. The trail goes cold in the Shadow Sea cluster as the signal is being actively blocked. It isn't much to go on, but Shepard and the crew head to the Shadow Sea to the planet of Horizon in pursuit of Kai Leng. As Edie points out to the crew, the only thing of note on Horizon is the Sanctuary facility, set up to give refugees a place to stay and be fed whilst the war is ongoing. The crew arrives at the sanctuary facility, and upon entering, it is clear to see that something is amiss here. There are no signs of colonists or refugees anywhere, and the place is in complete ruins. The reason for this soon becomes apparent, which is the fact that the Reapers have attacked. But why would they attack a facility used only for refugees? As Team Shepard explore the facility further, it becomes apparent that this facility isn't everything it seems. The facility is filled with Reaper tech, and at various terminals throughout the facility, Video messages from Miranda Lawson, our former squad member from Mass Effect 2, and James's character, Julius Shepard's lover, warning that the facility is actually a cover for a Cerberus research facility run by her father, Henry Lawson. It turns out that Cerberus have been using the refugees as test subjects for their experiments on how to control the Reapers, luring people to the facility under the guise of helping them, the bastards. As Team Shepard head further into the facility, they have to fight their way through hordes of Reaper forces en route to the facility's central comms tower. Upon reaching the control tower, we finally confront Henry, who is holding his other daughter, Oriana, Miranda's twin, at gunpoint. Epic parenting there. He proceeds to provide a little more context around his work at the facility before Shepard has offered a few choices on how to resolve the situation. So in my case, because Miranda is my bae, I'd sort of sorted her out and she was basically fully powered up for this bit. Right, okay, okay. Um, I, I told her that Kai Leng was there, I'd like to expect Kai Leng. I gave her some Alliance intel and uh, sorted her out with some other stuff, including my penis, before the, <laughs> before the mission happened. 
<laughs> is Miranda? Oh right, so she's actually been in your playthrough the whole game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I did side quests right. and shit. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, because of all that, and because of the fact that I'm a paragon, I was able to basically say to Henry, "Hey, man, like we can negotiate this. Just like just let Oriana go." And that lets him makes him drop his guard enough to let Oriana go, and then Miranda just biotics him through a window, and he dies. It's, it's oh shit! Brutal. Okay, okay. Um, so the standoff in my case was resolved with henry's death and everyone else surviving um how, how did yours go i'm guessing you probably didn't quite have the same miranda <laughs> impact that i had not quite so yeah uh, a range of different things happened in this scenario number one my renegade choice was in order to make oriana be released by her father i shot her in the knee she gets shot in the <laughs> yeah. knee drops to the floor and then miranda chucks him out the window but at this point, Miranda's also been mortally wounded because I didn't tell her about Kai Leng. I had pretty much zero interaction with her leading up to this point other than a brief audio call while I was on the Citadel. In the Spectre office. Yes, exactly that. You can kind of start a chain of events from doing that and you speak to her at various points. Um, I'm aware that that's possible, but I didn't pursue it because uh, unlike Julius, my shepherd, Gillian Shepherd, uh, lived a loveless life and uh, had no romantic acquaintances whatsoever. And uh, because of this and, and the fact that I had no relationship with her whatsoever, uh, Miranda also died in this section as well. Brutal. Poor Miranda. F in the chats. And I take it Miranda made it through yours without any oh, yeah. issue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. She survived. She was absolutely fine. Like, yeah, all good. Had a little smooch. Your squad selection screen in this game at this point must be so much bigger than mine. I had like five people to choose from. Uh, I didn't have many more because you don't get Miranda as a squad mate again. Like, oh, okay. She's just a cameo. So I probably only had maybe one more than you because I got Javik, the Prothean, and I don't know if you did. No, I didn't. I didn't encounter Javik, no. Yeah, and Caden. Obviously Caden. Yeah, Caden caught a bullet <laughs> and uh, never, never made it throughout the rest of this game. With Henry now dead and the facility shut down, we were able to explore the consoles in the tower, allowing us to obtain the location of Cerberus headquarters, the final destination of Kai Lang. The crew returns to the Normandy and sets a course for the Horsehead Nebula, hoping to reach the Cerberus base before it's too late. Upon arriving in the Horsehead Nebula, Shepard, Edie, and a companion of our choice travel to the Anadia system and dock on the Cronus station, the Cerberus HQ. Oh, if only it were that simple, though. Shepard's Kodiak shuttle is shot at relentlessly by Cerberus fighters, leading to a rather uncouth landing in the Cerberus shuttle bay. After fighting their way through multiple Cerberus troops, and having to avoid Cerberus shuttles which would intermittently launch through the central atrium of the shuttle bay, an announcement comes over the Tannoy system stating that there has been a security breach and the shuttle bay is going to be vented. Thankfully, Shepard is able to escort Edie to a terminal in time to prevent this from happening, although the shuttle bay remains locked down, meaning that there is no obvious way to continue further into the base. Thankfully, the ever-crafty Commander Shepard comes up with a scheme that we will refer to as Operation Make Your Own Door. Using the shuttle bay's control terminal, Edie is able to rotate the shuttle platforms so that instead of the shuttles firing out of the base into space, they fire into the base, not into space. Walking through the new fighter-shaped doorway that we've created, Shepard and the crew advance deeper into the facility, cutting their way through swarms of Cerberus troops. At various intervals throughout our journey deeper into the facility, the game gives us further insight into the Lazarus Project, the scientific project from Mass Effect 2 that was used to bring Shepard back to life, under the guise of Edie having to unlock a door. Ah, video games. 
After fighting through yet more rooms of Cerberus troops, Team Shepard arrives in a large central chamber that houses something that I certainly wasn't expecting to see. It is none other than the remains of the human Reaper boss from the end of Mass Effect 2, which I thought had been destroyed because I destroyed the base, but apparently not. Apparently they somehow managed to save that. It just goes to show that Cerberus will stop at nothing in their pursuit of power for humanity and dominance over the Reapers. Just as a little uh, note here, this is another one of those things where it just makes me feel like the paths were on a set course to finally converge at the end and there were certain elements that they just couldn't give up and make the choices that we made in the earlier games really count this seems like they needed some sort of excuse or reason for Cerberus to be able to wield this power the human reaper was too good of an excuse not to and for that reason they kind of ignored the fact that you were supposed to reduce this base to nothing do you know what the only difference is what's the difference it's more funky looking it's, it's melted in your playthrough <laughs> no i do you know that would be i'd respect that i don't even think it's that the, the only difference is, is that we get a different war asset as a result of finishing this mission okay i forget which way around it is but i think i would get the heart of the reaper and you've got the brain of the Reaper. Right, okay. Don't know what the f*** difference it makes, but you're right, it's basically the same. It justifies the same means for Cerberus's progression into all of the shady stuff that they're up to in the game. But it's a shame, because I'd have liked to have seen a bit more of a difference there. Maybe there could have almost been like a another side to the war asset system where you could also diminish enemy resources based on your actions in the previous game. That would have been a concept that they could have played with. Alas, it wasn't to be. Anyway, after a final fight against yet more Cerberus troops, the crew finally arrives at the office of the elusive man. The same office that we gushed over in our rundown of Mass Effect 2 due to its epic view. Yeah, lovely office this. And I clocked this just arriving within the system itself. You could see the giant, uh, I think it's like a red giant or something like that the in planet, the background. Yeah, yeah. and uh, immediately I knew where we were going and what the view was about. It was cool to actually see that recognised in the actual map rather than just seeing cutscenes of it. However, the elusive man is not actually here in person, although he does make an appearance via hologram to goad Shepard. During this conversation, we learn that he is on the Citadel, which has now been moved to the Sol system and is orbiting ominously above Earth. From here, he plans to use the information gleaned from the Prothean VI that Kai Leng stole to gain control of the Reapers. After the conversation with the elusive man ends, Shepard heads over to the elusive man's terminal and begins a conversation with the Prothean VI. In this conversation, we learn that the catalyst, the missing component that will allow completion of the crucible, is none other than the Citadel itself. Before Shepard can contact the Alliance Brass to give them this new information, the Dark Souls boss music begins as Kai Leng appears for the final round. And if only there was actually boss music once again, but there wasn't. He just walks in. And uh, this fight, for me, and I do feel like I'm sort of dumping on Mass Effect 3 quite a lot this episode, but it just wasn't fun. Kai Leng has basically the same moveset, but there's no gunship to gun you down this time, and there's zero cover. Zero cover. I mean, there's literally nothing. Until occasionally some f holes in the floor will start forming and you can kind of get in there. That was my tactic for this boss fight. He would punch the ground and damage it in order to regain his shields. And at that point, I just bedded down in the trenches he was making. Instead of the gunship coming in, he'd just summon waves of Cerberus troops. And they were all the same Cerberus troops. We've been fighting for the whole game. There was nothing new, nothing exciting. And I don't recall him having a different moveset or anything like that. So just a little bit anticlimactic. 
he has like a moonlight blade slash that he can do that's a bit of a ranged attack. Uh, he has some close up ranged melee moves and then he also has his hand blaster, but that's about it. He can grab you and you just have to like tap F to get out of it, kind of like when a husk grabs you. Oh, okay. I don't think I ever got that, but throughout this boss fight, as I said, I was kind of bedded down in cover, so I just sat there pelting him. I just never felt in peril with it though, because the same with the husks. If they grab you, there's no peril. You just mash F and then right. eventually you, you one-shot them. With Kai Lang, you obviously don't one-shot him, but yeah, just uh, a pretty nothing fight. I, I would have liked something a bit more if this is phase two, if you like. I, I just I would have liked a different moveset, maybe. Yeah, seeing something a bit more would have given him a hell of a boost because there is a precedence for boss fights or semi-final boss fights like Saren in the first game. He actually had multiple stages during that. You thought you killed him, you thought it was entirely over, and then he assumes an entire new form. So I would have liked to have seen something similar to that, even as kind of like a bit of a ripoff or even like homage to Saren. Something like that, where Kai Leng just disintegrates into a crazy robot thing that Cerberus has been cooking up. Exactly. Just a bit disappointing, really. So with Kai Leng defeated once and for all, Shepard and the crew return to the Normandy for one last briefing before the final assault on the Citadel. Admiral Anderson calls, and Shepard explains the reason why the Citadel is now over Earth, and tells Anderson that they will be arriving soon. Hold in there, Anderson. I know things are looking grim, but uh, we'll be there shortly, buddy. Exactly, but not before, Will, we can have one final dream sequence. Oh, God, I tried to block this memory out of this goddamn dream sequence. Yeah. This one was uh, the same as the other two. <laughs> I mean, it's... It really is. I, I don't get the point of them. The fact that it doesn't add anything to the game and instead it just repeats various messages that characters have said to me in the past. I guess on my Renegade playthrough, I heard a lot of voices discouraging me. I heard, for instance, uh, my Geth buddy, Legion, begging me not to uh, destroy his race or whatever like that. Like It's just people chastising you throughout this nightmare sequence. And I think I talked about this a little bit on the stream you know, a little side plug that you can go over and watch on YouTube or Twitch, your choice, was that I wondered whether this nightmare sequence could have been different for you. And I would have, this is another thing I'd have liked to have seen. I would have liked to have seen memories of this nightmare sequence to have been different, or even the setting of the nightmare sequence to be different. But from what I can tell, you haven't put your hand up and said, oh no, it wasn't just an ashy burning environment full of lots of dead trees and stuff. Like, it was your typical nightmare scenario. I would have liked it so that you were in, like, lush... I know it would have taken away from the theme <laughs> of nightmare, but yeah, yeah. it would have been interested to see if they did it differently, where you were walking through a field and it was sunny instead, and you didn't have all the disparaging voices, and you were just following a silent child or whatever. But once again, this is just a missed opportunity, I feel. I have a theory on what these are about that we'll cover at the end. I'm really keen to get into that because I don't get it. Yeah, I'm probably clutching at straws. I will say that there is no difference. I've done Renegade and Paragon playthrough. There might be a different voice that says something slightly different. I honestly didn't pay attention in this section, so apologies right. for that. <laughs> but I doubt it, honestly. I think it's just memories and like stuff. And what I think these dream sequences, and in fact the entire meeting with the child is, I'll get into once we've covered the end, because the end comes into my theory. Sure thing. If you see what I mean. But yeah, this was just fucking pointless. Uh, killed all the pace of the game again. Uh, I, I didn't like these. Any of them. Not a single one. Even with my theory, it, it's not worth the payoff in my opinion. Anyway, enough of that nonsense. As Team Shepard arrives at the Soul System, we are greeted by a cutscene showing the fleet that we have managed to accrue, our war assets, arriving for the final confrontation with the Reapers. So for me, Will, this was just like fucking loads of stuff. Like, I had all the war assets, the bar was overfilled, so I just had everyone. Did you have 
less stuff i mean i know it's hard to say because you didn't see my screen right but did you have like not a lot of people coming through it did still seem like the scale of my armada was still pretty hefty and they did show a fair few of the people chiming in as well they do do a roll call at a certain point in it where they call out and they're like warriors checking in blah 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 i imagine yours was like five or six people saying shit when mine was like humans checking in koreans checking in and it's just a bit of silence (laughs) okay let's go (laughs) turians Tyrians. Uh yeah, we we did we had obviously had some, you know, some forces working away, but ultimately it was Finn on the ground and there was this overriding sense throughout all of these scenes that we were getting our asses kicked, uh which may have been different to what you were seeing in your cutscenes. Oh yeah, I was strong. Very it was strong. one of those things where it kind of tricks you into thinking that we're going to be okay because we do some damage within the first couple rounds and then immediately after that it's just everyone getting rinsed, everyone getting blown up. Uh, yeah, the uh, the troops did not do well in this situation because of my low war assets. Did you hit the minimum mark at least? Actually, I don't know for certain, which is quite annoying, but when I did go back to check before... I'm pretty sure I told you off pod that I was like a hair away from hitting the minimum. Yeah. However, due to some events that maybe we'll get into uh, as we get to the end of our coverage in this, and also because of something that we did speak about on pod, so we'll talk about it now, the fact that I got the Rachni to help, they decimated one of my science crew. So I had stuff going on in the background because of choices I'd made that actually meant that my war assets were diminishing as I was playing. Really? Because I hired uh, a bunch of spiders to work with my scientists, and uh, I think it says like an additional note at the end that the last com thing was just a bunch of people screaming screaming about being slaughtered by spider traitors. Really? Because I saved the Rachni and I didn't get that. Oh, okay. Interesting. That is interesting. Unless I just missed it, but... I was going to say, did you make sure to check your war assets and then go and read them whenever there was an update? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I just don't recall that being... Because they're on the Crucible bit, right? I don't recall that ever being a thing. Well, perhaps that was because the fact that I was actually using a twisted version of a Reaper Rachni and Maybe, you were using yeah. the Rachni Queen that was Reaper-fied and there's some sort of difference therein. I don't know. That's very interesting interesting yeah i might have to look into that yeah very cool but anyway long story short i don't think i met the minimum requirement and if i did i only just made it so we absolutely got our asses kicked in the bits coming up in this i don't think it made a huge tangible difference in terms of the gameplay though honestly i felt like it was just cutscene related the ending will be affected by that potentially so we'll get into that i'm sure but with whatever size of fleet we have the final assault will begin with Shepard and two crewmates landing on Earth to take out Reaper Hades cannons, which are anti-aircraft cannons, to allow more forces, specifically a group called Team Hammer, to land on Earth to aid with the assault. As soon as the crew arrive on Earth, the fight with the Reapers begins as Shepard's Kodiak is swarmed by cannibals the moment it lands. Shepard fights their way through more Reaper forces until they reach the Hades cannon, which they are able to take out with conveniently placed missile launchers strewn across the map. Very nice of Earth to do that for us. I think one of them was that we had a Kodiak shuttle that got taken out alongside us and we recovered some from the wreckage. I think that was the excuse for the fact that we had to go get them first. The team that was supposed to be doing that shit got blown up, so we had to do that as well first. <laughs> Fucking leave it to Shep to sort it out, eh? Oh, always there to save the day. But after defeating yet more waves of Reaper forces, a shuttle will arrive to extract the crew from the vicinity of the Hades cannons. On board is Admiral Anderson and some of the Earth Defence Force. No, not those guys. (laughs) No bugs here. The shuttle takes Shepard and their crew to the forward operating base, where we, the player, are given an opportunity to talk to all of our old squad mates and other key characters that we have met on our journey, essentially doing a run of final goodbyes. 
And despite my inclinations in the game previously, I did actually make sure to do this out of uh, like a sense of owing it to the game to make sure that I engaged with all the dialogue. I have skipped a lot of content in this game, and I will say that's not in the way that I've been taking this game lightly. I've been genuinely making decisions that I feel like my Renegade Shepherd would make, such as doing things like not visiting Caden in hospital that have cut me out of content, as well as, you know, characters dying on previous campaigns and blah, blah, blah. But I did make sure to say my final goodbyes to everyone. One thing I want to ask you, James, is there is a small room off to the side in this street where you can call up some people via comlink that obviously couldn't be there on the day in the particular street that you're fighting. The only person that I had in that section that I could contact was Zaid. There was no one else <laughs> that was willing to pick up the phone. I take it you had like several menus and submenus of contacts for people that you could phone in the game. Do you know what? No, I had three. Oh, okay. Well, that's uh, still more people than uh, I could reach out to. Yeah, so I think I had Miranda, Zaid, and then I'm desperately trying to remember. I think Rex might have been the last one. Right, okay, okay. Or, or like um, Jacob or something. I can't remember who the last one was. But yeah, no, it wasn't this huge list of people that you might have been expecting, no. Most of them were on the planet with me, to be fair. Just in another location somewhere else. Yeah, and this was cool, but um, the only one that was actually meaningful to me was Garrus. I knew that was coming. I was waiting for it, yeah. This may be the last time we uh, say hey to each other, Garrus. Well, not at all. I took him with me, obviously. Oh, right. Okay, fine. Yeah, he was... So it was a bit weird, but, but... Because Garrus has been my guy throughout all three games, he's been like my only permanent squad mate, basically. And who else was with you on this kind of last hurrah to fight the Reapers? Uh, by this point, I was using um, Garrus and Tally exclusively. Nice, nice. A little techie friend as well. Yeah, just Garrus because he's Garrus. And then uh, Tally has Overload and Drones. For this mission, I took Liara and Edie. That's been pretty much my squad throughout the whole of this game as well. For similar reasons, they have useful powers. Edie has Overload and Flames, and Liara has the Supernova that you can shoot. Shepard also has one of those, and I was finding that firing a bunch of Supernovas off for area control was really effective in this game. Oh yeah, double singularity would be broken. Once all of our conversations and final preparations have taken place, Shepard returns to Anderson to go over the plan. As it turns out, the reason the Reapers were so interested in London, as we mentioned on last week's episode, is that a conduit beam has been constructed which will allow any forces on the ground to be beamed straight up to the Citadel, essentially acting as a fast travel point. The beam is being guarded by a Reaper destroyer, which needs to be eliminated so that the Hammer Team can rush the conduit beam to reach the Citadel in time. Hammer Team's main objective is to escort tanks equipped with missiles towards the Reaper destroyer so that it can be taken out. Shepard and two squadmates of our choice, as we've just discussed now, are tasked with escorting the tanks on this journey to ensure their safe arrival. Before leaving, our Shepherds have an opportunity to give another rousing speech, akin to the one given in Mass Effect 1, only not as well done in my opinion. A little bit lame. Watered down. Same message, just toned down, I'll agree. The team sets out and fights their way through hordes of Reaper forces amongst crumbling apartment blocks and derelict parking lots, clearing the way for Hammer Team as they go. Eventually, Shepard and co. reach an area called the Thanex Missile Battery, where one of the largest gunfights in the game takes place. In this section, Team Shepard is tasked with surviving three waves of Reaper enemies while simultaneously deactivating firewall controls on the missile tanks to allow the missiles to be fired at the Reaper Destroyer. I think this is the point in the game where the objective comes up, which is just survive. 
And yeah, I was getting real major Halo Reach vibes from this uh, section in the game. Yeah, it just it's an onslaught. It really is. Just um, all the enemies that we've seen throughout the game just all getting thrown at you in multiples. I think at one point I had five brutes on my screen. Yeah, genuinely. they go crazy right at the end with the amount of brutes. I think before that you fight like two or three banshees in very close proximity and they have loads of AoE attacks as well. So there is quite a lot to be dodging. And then five brutes. Thankfully, by that point in the game, I had discovered the ultimate brute technique, which just wipes them off the face of the planet in less than two seconds. Singularity Incinerate? No, uh, Incinerate, two warps, one from myself, one from Liara. And if that hasn't done it, which 99% of the time it does, you just chuck a grenade in their face and that takes off the last pip. And also does a bunch of damage to the surrounding ones. So you find out that if you have to do that technique for the first one, the second and third ones in the queue, you only need to do half of those abilities in order to get them down as well. So I was having a load of fun using the biotics to take out the brutes at the end. Yeah, that is cool. My tactic was um, similar. So because I had incinerate, it was incinerate, snipe, snipe, incinerate, and then they're pretty much dead. Right. So similar sort of thing. Yeah. And I could have used a grenade as well if I'd wanted. I've got sticky grenades, but I didn't use them at all throughout the game because my other powers were better. So there we go. So after the third and final wave, the Reaper Destroyer has now moved close enough to Shepard and far enough away from the Conduit Beam to allow the missiles to be fired into its weak spot, which is basically its own firing cannon, destroying the Reaper and allowing us to progress. At this point, we receive word from Admiral Hackett that a bunch of Reapers have broken off from the fight in space, in Earth's orbit, and are heading towards Earth itself. Shepard and their crew take a truck ride towards the conduit beam, but before they can reach it, the truck is hit and Shepard and co will need to continue their journey on foot. And at this point, I think we're probably going to have relatively different outcomes based on how we've played the games in its entirety, as well as the Paragon and Renegade choices that we've made and what we're about to choose to do. So at this point, Will, I'd like to hand it over to you. Your truck's been blown up. You're heading towards the conduit beam. The Reaper is Well, not the Reaper. Reapers galore are firing at you. is going down take it away what happened with your characters you were with and what happened when you eventually got to the beam if you eventually got to the beam so this was a little bit of a saving private ryan beachfront moment for me after that vehicle crash i was seriously messed up my shepherd got really beaten up and it was a slow crawl towards the conduit whilst i had enemies running at me and at that point i was pretty much armed with a standard pistol and you just have to slowly semi-cruel and in some cases literally cruel your way to the conduit through the enemies also during this moment i actually lost both of my crew members liara and Edie, uh to a reaper beam that was coming down from one of the crafts they just got absolutely annihilated in front of me as i was still making my way towards the conduit like deaded deaded from what i could yeah like as in hit by a laser beam that i cannot fathom how they survived if they didn't get deaded deaded Okay, damn. But now that I think about it, events that I saw at the very end suggest that Liara did survive that, so maybe I was just bugging out when I saw it, but I thought I saw them both get wiped off the face of the earth. I can believe Edie's surviving because Edie's still on the Normandy. She just lose the body. But Liara, I'd be surprised, yeah. So I thought at that point that I had lost both my crew members... I finally survive my way through past loads of wreckages and more enemies, get to the conduit, and get sucked up towards the Citadel. So up on the Citadel, I also hear through Anderson on the radio explaining that he's also somehow made it onto the Citadel as well. And I'm able to speak to him as I'm working my way through the Citadel in order to get to the main control centre. At this point, I finally arrive, meet up with Anderson, but I'm also confronted by the elusive man, who at this point has gone full deranged, his face looks half burned away, 
a lot of his underskin is being exposed as black and blue veins and he just looks fully twisted at this point looks like he's been caught up in some kind of explosion interesting he didn't look like that for me did he not he just looked like his regular self did he a bit more reaper maybe but yeah he wasn't like burnt or anything like that yeah he had like black streaks across his face for me all sorts of stuff going on uh, i don't recall that necessarily apart from him maybe being more reaper but maybe it's just a different interpretation at this point the elusive man uh he's having a real power trip he's talking about his ambitions to control the reapers and release us from this cycle that they have in store for us he also reveals that just as he has been controlled by the reapers to some extent shepherd is also being controlled by the reapers and actually forces us to put a bullet in admiral anderson's stomach during this encounter so admiral anderson cops one to the stomach but he does remain standing However, just before Anderson is about to be executed by the elusive man, we stop him from executing Anderson by shooting him instead. And at this point, the elusive man falls to the floor. He looks back on Earth one time and says that he wished we could appreciate it the way he does. Clearly, he hasn't been convinced. And certainly during the course of this whole conversation, we haven't been able to convince him that he is being controlled by the Reapers. And the fact that he is indoctrinated seems to have gone completely over his head. He dies, still in ignorance. And the cutscene plays out that Anderson at this point is still alive, although just barely. Uh, He has been shot in the stomach and looks quite in pain. Shortly after we shoot the elusive man, the Crucible docks with the Citadel and the device is fully complete. At that point, we share a few touching last moments with Anderson. And we get a radio signal from Hackett explaining that something appears to be still wrong with the device, it's not firing, and we need to do something manually. At this point, Shepard drags their beaten up ass all the way to the control point, but actually fails at the last minute and is taken upwards by a platform. We then awaken at the top of the platform, at the very centre of the crucible, and are greeted by a little boy, uh, a very familiar face actually, the child from the very start of the game, that we saw get blown up as we were trying to escape the Reapers back on Earth. So the child explains to us that we have a choice to make at this point in the game. Upon being weighted with these heavy decisions that the child has instilled upon us to do with the future of the entire universe, my shepherd actually decided that they didn't want to partake in this test or whatever this exercise was by the catalyst appearing to us as a child And my shepherd in this scenario decided that humanity would decide its own fate by actually deciding to not participate in the exercise at all and actually refused to take part, resulting in the Reapers wiping all life from the galaxy and going ahead with their plan. Wow. So the whole argument for doing this, and this seems a little bit weird that we've been fighting the whole way through the campaign in order to stop the Reapers only at the very last hurdle to decide that actually it's fine, it can happen. And I'll explain to you the reasons why and the reasons why I can appreciate why actually this isn't a bad ending in my opinion I actually kind of like the decision to be made here the reason for going for this choice is is that we lose our free will by being made to pick any of the choices that are presented to us by the catalyst in terms of the way the rest of this goes down the only way to make a free decision is by choosing not to participate whatsoever And that was the reasoning that Shepard did in terms of if humanity is going to be eradicated, we'll be doing it via our own free will rather than our hand being forced by some sort of greater power that says, pick from any of these two or three endings or whatever like that. We said, no, we're not playing the game. And by that virtue, we do perish, but we avoid succumbing to any sort of greater power in the game. That is a very, very interesting justification for that. The ultimate result in the choice of letting the Reapers take over 
the game finally ends as we show a world that appears untouched and the camera pans all the way down into the depths through the cores of the world where we see a video game hologram of Liara to Sony explaining the legend of Shepard along with all the mistakes that we made along the way in hopes that the next version of humanity that does come along because life will always persevere that the next generation of beings will be able to learn from our mistakes in the same way that the Protheans left little breadcrumbs for humanity. We've now done the same for the next race that comes along. Yeah, there is actually a cutscene you get with a time capsule at some point with Liara where she asks you, what do you want me to say about you in this thing I'm making? And you can be a dick about it and you can be like, oh yeah, just make them make me out to be a fucking legend. <laughs> I like that. That's a nice way of uh, of tying in. This does then go on to have the ultimate impact uh, where you see, I guess, uh, a bunch of years later, you see a couple people that are titled only as stargazers looking up at the sky and they clearly reminiscing Shepard, talking about Shepard and the older stargazer says to the child stargazer something along the lines of through Shepard's teachings, we learned to overcome the Reaper threats and life is all good. So in a way, you actually get a surprisingly happy ending by choosing to not partake in that, because ultimately, even though humanity perishes... All organic life perishes, yeah. For the time being, until life eventually always perseveres and comes back through the cracks, at that point, they have then learned enough to actually take on the Reaper. So we didn't get it this time, but we equipped the next guys. We crawled so they could fly. Fair. I am surprised you picked that option, and I'm also surprised at how it turned out. When the truck got hit by the Reapers, I too saw my squad mates get hit as well. However, only Garrus got hit, which was f***ing annoying. It really was. Couldn't it, couldn't it have been Tally? Like, jeez. <laughs> but survived, and I forced him and Tally to get on a helicopter, or, oh, sorry, on a Kodiak shuttle, and was like, look, dude, I'll handle it from here. You just go make sure you survive. And so so they both survived and went back to the Normandy. Jobs are good. Same thing happens where I'm just, I have the scene where I, all my armor's gone. I'm walking with a pistol, shooting the odd guy, crawling, head into the beam. Anderson's up there as well. Have my conversation with the elusive man. And throughout the game, there's, I think, three conversations you have with him. One on Mars, one on Thessia, um, and then this one. And the one in his office, of course, so four. And um, I picked every single blue paragon option I possibly could on every single option. Because the idea is that you can try and convince him that he's indoctrinated and make him see the light. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure from my Renegade playthrough when I did it, that if you get all of the options, he will then shoot himself. Oh, right. And, okay, and jobs yeah. are good, right? But interestingly, on this one, I must have done something not quite optimally because I got through all the blue choices. And on the final, final one, uh, it was grayed out. So oh, I, I didn't bummer. have an option to do the final, final Paragon thing. So I actually, disappointingly, I had the same outcome as you. I ended up shooting Anderson in the stomach. And I had to do my only Renegade prompt that I did in the whole game. I had to shoot the Elusive Man. What happens if you don't do it? He shoots you and you get a game over. Really? And you have to go through that whole cutscene again. And you can't skip any of the dialogue. So it's really f***ing painful. Yeah, it's That's annoying. a bummer as well. Because, again, they could have written around that somehow. They could have made it a Paragon prompt. Like, it's all good. Like, it's just really bizarre. But anyway, same thing happens. Me and Anderson have a little one-to-one. -one. He dies in my arms basically um get the call from Hackett who says hey man the the citadel's not opening we need you to do something manually tap into the console get it to open same thing i try and walk up platform takes me up looks like i'm going to heaven looks like i've died <laughs> yeah. and, and i too have this uh, conversation with the catalyst the child vi reaper intelligence whatever the fuck it is i'm presented with the same three choices which is um destroy the reapers control the reapers or synergy 
You can make uh, organics and synthetics combine into an organic synthetic race to live in the world in harmony forevermore, right? Right, okay. Which is the ending I picked in my first playthrough when I did it, as a renegade, oddly, I know. But in this one, I, I picked what I thought would be the Paragon option. I destroyed the Reapers. Right, okay. I fulfilled the mission that was given to us and thought, fuck this, guys, I'm going to destroy the Reapers, then they can't be a threat to anyone going forward. Similar sort of reasoning to you in that I wanted to give the organics that were currently alive the free will to do what they wanted. The Reapers were stopping that in my mind, so I killed them all. That doesn't seem like a very Paragon-y choice to me. I feel like the world peace against organics and synths is the more the most paragon option out of the three is it truly paragon to fundamentally change everyone's dna make that choice for everyone is that truly paragon you know i, I don't the cost know. of world peace that's the most pure paragon ever <laughs> it is but my my character's logic was my mission was to destroy the reapers i'm a soldier i've always like achieved the mission i'm gonna achieve the mission yeah. so i did and uh it led to the reapers just basically falling out of the air like a big um, pulse comes out of the catalyst when it happens and they just all like die avengers styley everything just falls down pretty much yeah um i i saw that all of my squad mates survived it is assumed that shepherd dies as part of this i also got the little cutscene with the two guys walking on planet earth the old one saying to his son oh yeah the shepherd fucking saw it out probably exactly the same one you had like the starry night sort of blue background and stuff yeah 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 pretty much that same thing Probably some minor differences in dialogue about all the mistakes I made, maybe. Yeah, maybe, yeah. But then interestingly, I then got an additional little cutscene at the end in the wreckage of the Citadel, slash the Crucible, where it is implied that my shepherd survived. Because you, you like see a body, you don't see a head, you see a torso, and then you just hear, <gasps> Oh, fine. And he sort enough. of jolts. So it's implied that my shepherd survived. So kind of, uh, in my mind, that was a nice sort of happy feeling. The world is saved. Organics can go back to um, their lives. I've obviously brokered peace throughout my playthrough, so everyone in theory is going to be happy and like all good. And potentially Shepard survived. Yes, yeah. Oh, I think that that's probably as best confirmation you're going to get as you've made Shepard all the way through the trilogy. Exactly. So, and, and that was really it. But that does bring me to the theory that I've referenced throughout as to this kid, what it all means, and like what the hell these nightmare sequences are about. So when you first meet the child on Earth, right at the start of the game, when he's in that vent, you look away for a split second and then he's gone straight away, right? Right. You see him get on that ship and no one really helps him. No one, like, notices or interacts with him and then that ship gets destroyed. Yeah. You then see him in your dreams and stuff, right? And then you see him finally as the Reaper presence. My theory is that those nightmare sequences are Reaper indoctrination and you running through it to try and save the kid in it is you fighting off the indoctrination and trying to maintain grasp on your humanity and the reason i say that is because they typically always happened after a mission where you'd been in a reaper heavy area or dealing directly with reapers or the elusive man and because the child at the end that is representing the whole of the reaper's intelligence is that kid i think it's just the way of the game maybe saying to you hey this was the reapers trying to get in your head and trying to indoctrinate you and it kind of works at the end because you shoot anderson so it shows that you are kind of semi-indoctrinated you're yeah. just good at fighting it off yeah that's my theory on it which isn't worth the payoff of this um frankly shit ending to the series in general I, I thought i thought it was awful the way this game ends the confrontation with the elusive man was fine I wasn't expecting to fight him, but then to not have a final boss, to just have 
a choice that ultimately gives you the same ending. I don't know, I thought that was kind of shit given the storytelling that's happened in 1 and 2. The game does come to a fairly abrupt end, and I do agree with you that a final boss fight wouldn't have uh, gone amiss at all. Yeah, there's just no payoff to the threat the universe is in. You, I mean, you know, at this point we're sort of talking final thoughts of the game, I suppose, but we've referenced in, in this week's episode, and probably in all of them, the fact that we're just fighting hordes of Cerberus troops, hordes of Reaper enemies. There's maybe five mobs of each that you're fighting constantly throughout the game, and you can meet all of them within the first couple of missions. The, the, you really don't get anything new. No, I think that especially if you're doing all the side content like that, you're going to be fighting the same enemies over and over again, perhaps more noticeably than my playthrough as well, 100%. I think, almost certain. And uh, another thing that I think that the game suffered from was the fact that because this is a carriage shepherd on from two games previously, or for my case, because I kind of completely switched up playthroughs for my second one in terms of my class approach to the game, I had all of the same powers at a very similar degree that I had at the end of Mass Effect 2. So unlike the progression I experienced in Mass Effect 2, where I was unlocking all of these cool abilities and experimenting with them, this was very much just repeating everything that I've been doing for an entire game up until this point, in a game that forces you into way more firefight scenarios than any of the other ones previously, I felt like. There was a yeah. lot of the sections in this game that are just third-person shooter heavy, and this one really pushed the dial towards cover shooter and away from RPG. Not to say that it's not an RPG, not to say that it doesn't have plenty of elements involved in that but in pure percentage time of the game played i felt like i was shooting my way through enemies way more than i was making decisions in the game thinking about my build or anything like that yeah i agree with that and this game i think suffers from trying to be too cinematic for its own good we've mentioned plenty of times that these dream sequences completely killed the pacing of the game it just slowed everything down took you out of it let's just say for argument's sake that my indoctrination theory is correct even if it is it's not worth the way it slowed down the game and because there's no payoff to it you're not told that's a thing it it basically becomes pointless that's what i was just about to say is, is i really like your theory i do like the theory i think it's a strong one and in my head i can't think of anything to disprove that it makes total sense to me it's the fact that the game doesn't ever really give you that definitive answer therefore it's unconfirmed and it's just a theory whereas it would have been something that i might have looked back on with a bit more positive light if the game sort of explains something like that along the way. Exactly. In my mind, I like your theory. It's got a lot of cool pl things to hook into, but I'm also just as willing to believe that it was a real kid, Shepard saw them die, and much in the same way that Legion gave you a gun because it was familiar to you, the Catalyst was able to essentially read your mind through the indoctrination that you were experiencing and wanted to appear to you as a form that you would be most likely to go along with. Yeah, I, I see that, but then why not be one of your squad mates? Why not be Anderson? Why not, you know what I mean? Why the child that you didn't even really meet? Because the game made a big deal out of the child dying for some reason. <laughs> I know, it's just madness. It seemed really incongruent with my shepherd as well, because I'm a heartless person. I've sent multiple people to their deaths, extincted races, betrayed friends, all sorts of things in this game. It just didn't make sense to me why you'd be so cut up over a child that you saw getting blown up in the distance. It just didn't really play into the character that I thought I was up until Mass Effect 3. Yeah, and I think that kind of plays into what you were saying 
thing about it being more of a cover shooter than an RPG. Even as a paragon, a lot of the things I had to do were quite renegade. Now, I do understand that in the sense of this game is set in a desperate time period. You know, the fucking Reapers are going to destroy all organic life if we don't act. There's no time to be nice. But it's an RPG in theory. I wanted to have the opportunity to be nice. And I tried my best. And it just wasn't as satisfying a playthrough, honestly. Renegade in general was a much more satisfying playthrough. It's funnier. It's got cooler sort of interactions, in my opinion. And it makes more sense. Apart from the child thing. That's the one thing that doesn't make sense and never will. Unless it's the indoctrination thing. I think perhaps this game was a little bit rushed. Perhaps they were getting tight on the budget. But the way that the paths decided to converge in this game, it brought everything together in a way that the ultimate outcome, as we said, isn't that different. And I think that they really struggled to find two endings that were really distinct and actually fully fleshed out the two extremes that we'd been playing up until this point. I would have really liked to have seen a kind of almost becoming godlike version of Shepard that is almost losing touch with his humanity at this point because he is focused on pure altruism instead. They could have explored with that just as much as they could have explored with an almost bloodlust, rage-filled Shepard that we could have seen as part of a renegade character as well. And I would have really liked to have seen that play into more elements of the game. It's a shame that a lot of the better choices you can make in the game appear in the side missions because they don't really affect the story, they just more affect your war assets, and that's a real shame. My main takeaway is that I enjoyed Mass Effect 3, I, I truly did, I know that I'm shitting on it a little We're bit. We're coming down on this really hard, it sounds like. But, compared to 1 and 2, it's comfortably the worst, I, I don't think there's any argument about that. And I think I'd package it more as, I f***ing love the Mass Effect trilogy, as a trilogy. 3 as a standalone game, mm. It's the only one where I got towards the end and I was like, well, I mean, if I'm being truthful, probably about halfway through with all the side missions, where I was like, I'm ready for this to be done now. How much of that do you think is owing to the fact that you spent most of that time hiding behind cover shooting enemies? And that's all you were doing for long spans in the gameplay? Hard to say because I was doing that in 2 as well. And 2 is like was a pleasure to play. I loved 2. I, I agree with you, but 2 felt like they were less drawn out, the sections that you had to fight through, so that you weren't going through five minutes of enemies at a time. It was maybe a minute or two. But maybe I'm just misremembering. Yes, yeah, so the odd collector fight could be quite intense, but for the most part, you're right. It was more storytelling, less reliance on fighting. And the decisions that you made in between those fights seemed to hold more sway. Yeah, a little bit. And, I, and to be honest, I think it's easier to do that in the confines of a suicide mission game, which is essentially what two is. Yeah. Three is just collecting as many allies as you can get to the big final battle that isn't actually a final battle because you just fucking pick an option and that, that's my biggest gripe with the game the end it's also a very black and white option in the game as well there's not really any nuance to it unless there's some endings that we haven't covered or that i haven't thought of out of all of them i honestly from a writing perspective like my ending the most the fact that i chose to ultimately die of my own free will and not play the aliens game it's a weirdly anticlimactic, but it works ending. And I actually honestly, honestly like that one the most from the endings that you've described. Fair. I mean, I, I can't speak to it because I haven't had it. Of the two endings I've picked, neither of them were great. Um, controlling the Reapers, I don't imagine, is much better. That's the one I thought you'd pick. That's the most renegade one to me. F*** these guys. I'm going to control them and have their power like Cerberus wanted. That would be my renegade choice. Because uh, to me, your ending sounds a little bit like a cop-out. Your shepherd was just like, oh, no, f*** it. I just, I'm going to be me. F*** the rest of the organics. I'm just going to do what I want to do. Yeah, that's renegade as f***. 
Like, that's the most renegade you can get. You're like, fuck everything, I'm doing me. How more renegade can you get? I guess it depends on your definition of renegade. Yeah. Renegade to me is gets the job done no matter the cost, not cops out at the end. I respect it though. I think that your framing of it as a cop out, I don't see it as that. I see it as the most pure form of rebelling against the powers that are telling you to do something. I can see where you're coming from. I, I just don't agree personally, but I respect it. I can understand why you'd say that was like the best ending of the ones presented because at least it has some character to it, honestly. Because doesn't the kid just sort of go, ah, f*** you, you're doomed then. Like, and then just turns his back on you and then you die, right? Yeah. So I can see it from all standpoints. But in conclusion, six out of 10, slightly better than average. Not a fan of three, but the series on the whole, beautiful. Loved it. I, I don't think I could give the series as a whole uh, such high praise just for the reasons of three. I, I, yeah, I'm probably not going to bother assigning a numerical value to this. What I will say is that the first two were very good for what they were within the confines of what they were. Three had an opportunity to perfect a lot of the mechanics, but if anything, it just convoluted the game and the writing. It felt like they uh, sat this one out a little bit, I've got to be honest. So overall, I did enjoy the series. Overall, I did enjoy Mass Effect 3, but I think that the drawn out cinematic sections in the game, some of the still slightly clunky gameplay, uh, it detracted from the game quite a bit as well. And I think that if I was going to go back and play this, I would probably still rush through three, but I would be taking my time with one and two. Makes sense. Also, as a random little side note, and this is just like kind of a minor thing, but it actually really pissed me off still, so I'm going to mention it. You can't put away your gun in Mass Effect 3. You could in 1, and you could in 2, but in 3, you cannot holster your weapon, which is really stupid and really annoying, and really backs up the fact that this is a third-person shooter over everything else, because of the fact that in 1 and 2, when you wanted to explore and look around your environments, you would holster your weapon, the camera would pan out, and it would enable you to see everything around you a lot more clearly. But in this game, you will locked into a close behind the shoulder view of Shepard and you can only look where you're pointing your gun which hampers exploration not that there really is that much to explore or find in this game but nonetheless I would have much preferred to have the opportunity to do it and I don't know why they didn't put it in this one especially considering it was in the previous two games yep I agree um, I think it's just uh, as you say it's because they wanted it to be more of an action game I think they just forgot I just think well, why would you want to put away your gun <laughs> <laughs> but with all that we do come to the end of Completionist Corner for this week and also uh, the end of this game. Tune in next week to find out what we'll be playing next. And with that, we come to the end of the show. If you've enjoyed what you've listened to, you can, as always, find the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere else you get your podcasts by searching for Total Pod Mode. We also post regular video content of our playthroughs, stream highlights, as well as the podcast on our YouTube channel, Total Pod Mode. You can also find us on X by searching for at Total Pod Mode, all one word. Or you can find me at Hoodafunk on X, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Hoodafunk. And you can find me on X at Mr. Bames, and I'm also on Twitch under twitch.tv forward slash Mr. Bames underscore TPM. Please do engage. Leave us a comment. Leave us a rating. Five stars. We'd love to hear from you. Have any suggestions on things you'd like us to cover, discuss, play? Please do let us know. And do go check out the YouTube for coverage of Will's playthrough of the entirety of Mass Effect 3. Thanks very much, guys. We appreciate all the support we've received so far. Yes, but on that note, we do come to the end of the show. Until next week, take care, everyone. Goodbye now. Bye now. Bye now.